Uh, we are in our series entitled Target of Discipleship. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about this, um, that we are to uh, be discovered, in essence, discover Jesus. We want to help people discover Jesus in his church. Remember, we talked about it, that the Bible talks about Jesus and his church being him and his bride. And you can't like, have Jesus and not his church. The two go hand in hand. That's what we're to help people do, is discover who Jesus is and then come into this body of believers. And then after you do that, or a person does that, they're to grow. Uh, God has made it that once you know God, you're to grow with God. And we see that happening a lot in our worship service as the Word of God is being proclaimed. And we see that happening in our small groups where there's an intimate setting where people can speak more fully into one another's lives and grow in the truth of who God is. And after we start to develop as disciples, then we are to uh, go. In essence, we're to be deployed. And as I was thinking about this and thinking about just, um, uh, we have a guy on staff, Dave Heidel, who is, uh, was in the military. He was served in Vietnam. And he, he's always talking about soldiers. Um, it, it's very real to him still. He speaks at a lot of different conferences. And he talks about being a soldier and you, have your, your ba- you sign up and then you have your basic training and then you get deployed after you have that training. And in some ways, that's how it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Is we're, we sign up to follow God. And then we are to be trained and we're to be deployed. And it, it made me think of the military and, and the Coast Guard. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but the Coast Guard. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Coast Guard has a theme. Their theme is always ready. It's called semper paratus. It's what it is in Latin. And it means always ready, that they have to be ready to go at a moment's notice to patrol our seas, to rescue those who are in danger, to help those who are in need. But they also have an unofficial motto. And, and it's this, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. I love that. For a disciple of Jesus is God calls us to go out, but he says we don't have to come back. God is sending us out into the world. In other words, we're to even give our lives if necessary so that other people might know who Jesus is. Christianity is not a safe faith. It's not, I mean, when we talk about it and I see these radio stations and I understand the meaning of it, but when they say safe for the whole family, sometimes I laugh because I'm like, have you read the word of God? Because it's, it puts people out there. It, it puts God, God's people out into the midst of the world to testify about his greatness and love and pleading as ambassadors for Christ to people to be reconciled to God. Now, many of us might say to ourselves, well, that's for those who are like really called and this, you know, those who are really trained. And it's not for me. No, it is for you. It's for every single one of us. Those, anyone here who bears the name of Jesus is to be deployed out into the world for the glory of God's name. And today we're going to see what that looks like and how it's done, how God has deployed us. And, and, it, and really what it is, is just what it means to be a mature Christian. This is what it is. It's what deploy, being deployed means. It means being sent out. This is what a Christian is to look like in the world. This is we, how we are to behave ourselves. This is what God has called every single person who is trusted in Jesus Christ to do, without exception. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence boldly by the name of Jesus Christ, asking you to speak to us, your children, not because of any righteousness that we have, Lord, but entirely based upon your mercy and your righteousness that was shown supremely through your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we come into your presence right now asking you to peel back the layers of unbelief, remove the distractions from our hearts. Lord, please... uh, Convict us of the comforts that we hold so dear to that keep us from seeing the glory and light of Christ and to do that which uh, you have called us to do. May we risk everything for the glory of your name, Lord, and see how supremely valuable you are and what it is that you have made us and called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen. So we're in Romans chapter 12, and Paul is writing this, and he is uh, writing, he's, uh, chapter 12 is coming along right after chapters 9 through 11, after he had just spoken about the relationship of God's people, the, gen, um, the, the, the Jews, excuse me, and how they were grafted into this plan of God. The Gentiles were grafted into the Jewish plan to reach the entire world for the glory of his name. And after that, he responds, and he starts writing. And he's saying, this is how you are to behave. You are a new people. You are different. You're not, so much, you're not Jewish so much anymore. You're not gentle so much anymore. You're a new people in the sight of God. And this is what I've called you to do. And as you're going out into this world, this is how I want you to behave. And he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, first of all, I appeal to you. He's not saying I command you. He's saying I appeal. I appeal based on this. Because of God's love that was shown to you, and I just explained it in chapters 9 through 11, that God poured out his mercy to you through Jesus. That God had planned since the foundation of the world to bring forth uh, a nation, and it was to be Israel. Israel is to be a light unto the nations, but they largely failed in that task as a nation. But God, still even through their failure, brought forth a Messiah, the one who was to come, and he would bless all the nations. And God, through him, brought you into this body, and he showed his mercy on you, not based on any righteousness you had done. He says, by the mercies of God, I I appeal to you based on what God has done for you. What has God done for you? Has God been merciful to you? I mean, I I think about that question in my mind, and I think about my son. I was thinking about this and meditating on this. And my son, uh, every child is born with a sinful streak, as any parent knows. And my, my, my son is no exception. Um, all my kids have sinful streaks. I have one myself. We all do. But I remember when I commanded my son to do something, I said, don't do that. He looked at me, and then he did it. Now, as a parent, what is your first reaction? You're dead. <laughs> you know, I'm, it's like that's a deliberate sign of disrespect, right? That they are rejecting you. There, and in essence, that's what we have done with God. God said, I don't want you to do this. And we went, ha ha. And the thing is, is God waited. He's patient. And he did it again. And we did it again. And we did it again and did it again. And we're storing up, I mean, just wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent forth his son to take the penalty for what we did in the sight of God. That he gave his son for you, for all of your sins, all that you've ever done, all the things that you've ever wanted that have been apart from God, all of those sinful desires that you have tried to enjoy, you've tried to live your life apart from God. God still, who is rich in mercy, sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman, to identify supremely with us and take our punishment upon himself, in essence, becoming our substitute and taking the wrath of God upon himself. God was merciful to you. He doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. Because really, if he did, he'd kill you immediately. He'd take you out. But Paul is saying, because God is merciful, he loves you so much that he would give his son for you. The greatest gift that heaven had to offer was given for you. That the son of God, that he would give him for your sinful self, and you, you who were a spiritual terrorist, you who were a part of the, the guerrilla uh, rebellion, 
God would still love you and give his son for you. And Paul is saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I'm writing to this to the church. For those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that, um, according to the mercies of, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, and it's, he's intentionally using language that those within that century, first century, would have been familiar with. They understood sacrificial language, especially those who came from a Jewish audience. But even Gentiles understood it because of the different pagan gods and the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses required these different sacrifices. And within Judaism, there were very specific sacrifices that God required. And he's saying, rather than offering bulls and goats and sheep and, and anything else, I want you to offer yourself unto God. I want you to offer completely the entirety of your being. And as you do, I want you to understand that you are going to be a living sacrifice. In other words, I want you to live differently than the world around you. That's the first point that I want you to write down. A deployed disciple is one who lives differently from the world around you. You're to look different. I'm not saying that you should, you should be wearing uh, you know, shoulder pad blouses and khaki skirts and long hair with no makeup on. That's okay if that's your thing. But I'm not saying that's what we all have to be. God's not calling you to be an Amishman or an Amish woman. That's not what he's talking about there. He's saying, I want you to be different in how you live, your values, what you go after, your pursuits, your passions. See, the problem is, is that many of us don't want to be persecuted. So we want to be accepted by the world. We soak ourselves in the world's entertainment. We want what the world wants. We want to be accepted and loved and valued by the world. And the world will love you as long as you value what they value and adopt what they want. And if you don't, then the world will reject you. He's saying, no, you have to live differently. You cannot compromise. That you have to understand what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, that you have to lay everything down. In other words, he's saying that you need to surrender. We all need to surrender to God. Now, what does he want? Does he want your money? Does he want here? Amen. That's good. That's good. Um, but it, is it that he wants your, he, he just wants your outward obedience? He wants you to attend in here on Sunday morning? Is that what he wants? He wants you to force you into a, to a place of cultural conformity? No. God always wants the heart what he comes after every single time. He says that you need to, to if you're going to be a living sacrifice, and to be a sacrifice, it's like laying yourself on the altar. You're surrendering to what God wants you to do. Have you surrendered? What are you holding on to? You holding on to your family? You hold on to your career? You holding on to your job? Are you holding on to your comfort? You holding on to your entertainment? What are you holding on to? You holding on to your education, holding on to your intelligence. You're afraid that people are going to think that you're stupid. What are you holding on to? What are you not surrendering to God? God wants every single part of your life. See, we want to give God one thing to appease him so he'll stay away from us and not ask for any more because we're afraid of the pain what, uh, of, of we're going to go through of what he asks us to be or do. But see, God's not appeased like that way. He's not like a dog that you can throw a scrap to in order to get him away. That's not how God is. God wants your heart. He wants us to surrender. And that mean, that's what it means to live differently in this world. To be that living sacrifice, it requires us to 
surrender. But that's not all. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed. Now, the idea of conform there is a mold. Cookie cutter, if you will. That do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. The world wants you to fit its mold. And when you don't fit its mold, it will totally ostracize you. And he's saying, you can't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be the cookie cutter. Don't fall within the world, what the world values, what the world wants. Because what the world wants is enmity, is against what God wants. And it's true. He's saying that, no, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to be different, made different from the inside out. The word that's there is the idea of metamorphosis. But we can't put our modern understanding of metamorphosis in what was there. But it's, it's that root word of it. It's a changing from the inside out. That God is changing you by the renewal of your mind. Because God wants your mind. See, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. See, when you become a Christian, you don't leave your mind at the door. Your mind becomes totally soaked and of the master's use to be used by him. See, God wants your mind and he wants you to be renewed because the world is going to conform you and it's going to conform you in every which way it can. It's going um, to come after you in your workplace by what your colleagues value and what they're going after and their pursuits and money and power and what they want. It's going to try to force you into that mold. In our educational system, we see that going on where the world is saying, you have to do this way. This is how you have to do. You can't bring God and you have to live by this understanding. And you see that within our entertainment world as well, the media that we take in all the time, in our music, in videos, on our shows, on websites, all the time. It is trying to crowd God out and put us into this mold of the world. And we say, no, as believers in Christ, we have to be transformed. We're going to break that mold because Jesus broke that mold. And see, we are renewed and by by the renewal of our mind. How do we do that? It's through the word of God. It's through this word right here, this precious word that God has given, that God told us not to add to or take away from, that he has given it for once for all time. That you have, you have 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time from all different backgrounds, all different places, all writing about the exact same thing. See, God has given us this word that is timeless, that Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Or in the book of Isaiah, my word will accomplish everything for which I have intended it. That it's the living and active word that is profitable for rebuking, correcting, training, admonishing, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's this living word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword that separates soul and spirit. It's not about joints and marrow, but it's the the soul, the intention, the attitudes of our heart, our dreams, our aspirations, our passions. So God is saying, I want to shift your thinking. See, if you're a deployed disciple, he wants you to think different. Think different. That's it. Write that down. Think differently. It's shift in thinking. See, that's what it means living differently from the world. This difference can be seen in our surrender and our shift in thinking, that we're trying to think God's thoughts that we're so immersed within his word that we can we know what god wants us to do and you know what that's freeing because it the idea and it's showing here is that when you are doing this you can be able to determine what god's will is in any given situation see so many of us are trying to find out god's will for our lives we ask all these people but we don't ask god 
Or we ask God, but we're not willing to renew our mind and focus on God and do the work necessary because we want the Roman roulette will of God, where we just flip through the Scripture, put our finger down, and whatever is there is what God's will is for our life. That's not what God's saying. He's saying that I want you to be able to discern, to determine what is right and wrong, and that's by testing me, by trying and placing your word in my, my, my word in your heart and in your mind to help change you from the inside out. See, it's by being transformed that we can learn God's will and experience this true joy. And if we're to live differently, then it involves us seeking God's will. Because that's what the disciple wants to do. It wants God's will above all things. It's willing to be inconvenienced. It's willing to go through pain. It wants everything. It wants God more than anything else in the world. That's what it means. That you put God's will above yours. The problem that many of us have is that we put our will over God's and we try to say it's God's will and when God doesn't bless that or conform to our will, we get mad and leave the whole thing behind. See, the reality is though is that God has something more for you that's better than what your will is. So you think, God, I want this. And God is saying, no, I want to give you this and it's so much better. And you say, no, I want this. And if you don't give it to me, God, I'm not going to follow you. And God's going, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to come to see what I have for you. Now, see, the idea is is that God's will might be that you suffer. We don't like suffering. But see, that might be the way that God brings glory to his name through your suffering. We don't like that because we like our comforts. And many of us, what we try to do is pull back just enough that we don't suffer, but we can be comfortable and Christian at the same time. See, that's what many of us do. We want a safe Christianity. We want just enough obedience that we feel good about ourselves, but we want enough of the world that we don't feel like we're suffering too much. See, God's calling us to something more, something greater, something more joyous, something more awesome. And he's calling you to seek his face, to seek his, and it means surrendering. It means shifting your thinking according to his word. And it means seeking God's will. That's what it means there. By testing, you may discern. Translates this Greek word, dokimatso, uh, which often has the sense of finding out the worth of something by putting it to the use or test in actual practice. It's the taste and see if it's the real deal. Try it out and see if it works. God guarantees satisfaction. See, the more that we take in his word, the more we will see the use for it. And I can testify to this. By taking in his word, we can clearly see areas that many others see as gray. We, when people say, say, I like Jesus, but not this church, or I can have church by myself, and I can have my own religion, and we can look at them and ad- accurately say they're wrong because the Bible clearly, time and time again, lays forth that you need him and his body together. God's not okay with our sin. He's okay. He's only okay with us committing to him in complete surrender. But let's go back to our text. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here the idea is is that thinking has changed. You're thinking of yourself accurately. Don't think of yourself more higher than you ought. We have a tendency to esteem ourselves pretty well. We're the centers of our own universe. We're, we, we have our own abilities, our own talents. You know, we're pretty sure that the world does revolve around us, and we, there's a movie being made about us in our own mind. And we narrate that movie. So we do. 
But God's saying, no, 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 don't esteem yourself too highly. highly. Don't think of yourself as all that. Because when you put yourself against up to God, it's so minor in comparison. So, uh, I've talked about this before. I, uh, I'm a, I was a huge sports fan growing up. I'm still a pretty big sports man, fan now. And I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan. Amazing, you know, amazing basketball player, one of the best players to ever play the game. But the more I've learned about him personally, the more sick I've become. He was my hero growing up. I had posters of him all over my walls, even on my ceiling. But the more I've grown up, the more I hear about him, that it hurts me. One of the things that really bothered me was the name that he would use when he would check into hotel rooms. Do you know what it is? Yahweh. That's the, that's the, the covenant name of God. See, talk about someone esteeming themselves more highly than you ought. See, we think of ourselves as great. And he's saying, no, you need to think, you need to, according to the grace given to me, knowing that God has gifted and placed his work upon you, understand that you didn't get there on your own. That God didn't choose you because of how smart or how beautiful you were. That he chose you in spite of your rebellion. That he, de- he decided to place his love and set his seal upon your heart because of his, the depth of his love and grace and mercy to you. It's a pretty amazing thought. And he's saying, he's saying, but for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to think of himself more, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And he goes on in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Now see, this is where it comes back to, you can't have Jesus and not his church. He's saying here, I'm, I'm addressing the brothers, you're part of a body, and if you're not a part of that body, then you, I really question your faith. He's saying that when God has saved you, he has saved you to serve and be like Jesus, which means we are to be deserve, serving distinctly in the body. That's what it means to be deployed, by the way, is we're to be serving See, there are many different megachurches that are out there, and I don't want to condemn the megachurches. There's some great megachurches. But many of these people have people come to them because they can remain anonymous and never have to bear the burden of responsibility of being a member in the body of Christ. And he's saying, no, 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 you are members of one body. You, God has not just saved you to be this, this nameless person, but he has saved you and distinctly and gifted you and equipped you to be the person God wants you to be. He wants you to serve distinctly with who you are within this body. See, many people want to have the, the uh, revival of being in a good group like that with great music and amazing sermons and all this stuff, but they don't want to bear the responsibility of being a part of that body. You might have a lot of numbers. And, I, and, I, and I'm, again, I'm not throwing stones at them. They're doing the best they can with what they have. But we need to make sure that we are serving alongside one another and being those people that God wants us to be. Now, this service God is calling us to, first of all, it's based on grace. Grace. Look back at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We are different from one another. We all have different gifts. And I love that about the body of Christ. That every person has their giftedness, their, their background, what God has not only given them experientially, but in their mind and especially spiritually. It's the grace, it's based on the grace we have been given unto us. Now this grace we have been given, it's, it's also not just based on that, but upon the gifts we have received. Look at verse 4 through 8. 
For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. We're one people, and individually members one of another. We're connected. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. This, is, this can uh, mean a variety of different things. Many scholars are divided. Some are saying a prophecy is, is speaking a word about the future. And it's not necessarily knowing everything about the future. I like to look at it as looking at it as a pixel of a picture. That God gives certain moments of time of certain things uh, supernaturally that a person can see that. There's also the idea of prophecy of being foretelling of God's word. And so there's foretelling and foretelling. And I think both aspects are a part of that. Now, some might disagree with me, but I do see that element within the Scripture. But we see other gifts that are there. Not just prophecy, but service. These are people that are behind the scenes. Uh, The one who enjoys helping other people, helping him out, fixing a car, uh, bringing up drinks, or filling up the coffee, whatever it might be. People have these. These are gifts that people have. It might seem, well, really? Is that the gift? Yes, because they delight in doing it. There's a great there's a great blessing of serving other people that comes with that. The one who teaches in his teaching. People are gifted as teachers. The one who exhorts. These are people that are encouragers. Do you need an encourager in your life? There's some great encouragers that we have in our body. And they're great to be around because they encourage you. <laughs> they're like magnets. They come up to you and they're always saying what's good. Saying, wow, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. They're not lying. They're really, sometimes people just say that, but they really mean it. They're encouraging you. And we need that encouragement. We all do. The one who contributes in generosity. Now, we're all to contribute financially, but these are those, those individuals that God is blessed to give more financially. To give, they, that's their joy. I mean, you don't even have to have a lot of money to contribute that way, by the way. I had a, had a student of mine who worked with me who wanted to give. Her gift was generosity and giving. And we said, well, you can't afford to give, and we would let her give. And it denied her joy. So when we said, we're going to let you give, she wanted to give sacrificially because that's what God had gifted her to do. Has God gifted you to do that? Give. You'll find great joy in giving. Not just in generosity, but there's others that are there too. The one who leads, these are the leaders, the one who, who, who step up and can lead the people with zeal. The one who acts, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the one who is who's coming along different people and ready to help those who are really hurting. And we all have different gifts. Are you using yours? Why not? Why aren't you using your gifts? I'm too busy. Then as we said this before, if you are too busy to do what God has you to do, then you're more busy than God wants you to be. You need to cut something out. It might be good, but it's not what's great. I want you to serve him. The gifts we have received, but that's not all. These gifts are not just for your benefit, by the way. It's not for you just to delight in them, although that's a big part of it. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 7 for a moment. This isn't the only list, about, by the way, about gifts that people have received within Scripture. We see this in a few different other Scriptures, uh, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 12, then the book of Ephesians chapter 4. First um, Peter talks about each one of us uses our gift uh, for the glory of God. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 7 for a moment. It says this, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, every single person, without exception, if you were a follower of Jesus and trusted in him, he's given you a gift, without exception. 
Not everyone has all the gifts. Some have more than others, but without exception, you have a gift. Then he goes on to say, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for your own benefit. Is that what it says? No, it's for the common good. It's for the common good of all. That's what we must keep in mind, that it is for the good of all. This is for the benefit of the body. We need your gift. You say, well, I'm not that great. I'm just this. You know what? God has a tendency to use just these kind of people. He likes to use those who are too young, like Samuel, that we're going to be hearing about next week. Uh, He likes to use those who think they're too old, like Anna and and Simeon. Uh, Matter of fact, Abraham and Sarah. I mean, for crying out loud, Abraham's 100 years old, and he's fathering a kid. She's 90 years old, and she's working in the labor and delivery. Okay? God has a tendency to use those that we think are rejects or those who can't be used. And whatever excuse you have, I guarantee that God will use you. You might be immoral. You could be like Tamar. You might have committed adultery. Then you might be like David and Bathsheba. (laughs) Name something. You could be a murderer or participated in it. That's Saul. God uses everyone and all of their brokenness. That's what he does, and he gifts you to benefit the entire body. This is not a mistake that God has brought you here this morning, at this moment in time, to hear this word from God, that God is supremely gifting and shaping you, and he has gifted you for the common good. Are you fulfilling that? Because if you're not, not only are you hurting the body, but you're sacrificing your own joy. Your enjoyment of who God is. People say, well, I have no joy in God. Are you serving? Now, some people say, well, I'm serving and I still have no joy. Well, then you've got to change perspective. And that's why it comes into their text. That's what I I love about this. He he turns in verse 9. Let's go back into our Romans chapter 12. In verse 9, he says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. See, there are several things here. And we're going we're to get to each one, hopefully one by one, spend a little bit more time on this. But basically, if we're being deployed, if we're being these mature believers, then it requires us acting desirably in God's eyes. Because we have to remember that we live before an audience of one. Not before our peers, not before our family. It's before God. God alone, ultimately, is where we must live according to. And he's saying here, I want you to act desirably in God's eyes. He starts off, let love be genuine. The idea here, genuine is the opposite of counterfeit or hypocrisy. See, we, we want to pretend to love. You ever had fake being nice to somebody before? How many of you fake being nice this morning? Okay, you don't have to put your hand up. I'm not, I'm not asking quite for that type of transparency already, but that's okay. But, but we have this tendency to want to do that because we want to save face. But he's saying here, let your love be real. Let your love be real. And see, we need to act desirably even when we're tempted to fake it. When we want to pretend to be godly, when we want to put on this face, pretend that we're holier than we are. No, he's saying here, I want you to act desirably even when you're tempted to fake it. I want your love to be genuine, not fake. I want it to be the real deal. Now notice the next part. God desires us to abhor what is evil, 
Hold fast to what is good. See, if we go out into the world and we're being deployed, we're living among those in the world, we're going to be tempted to do evil. It's going to be all around us. We're going to see our friends and family do it. We're going to see it in our schools, workplaces, and possibly in our, by members in our family. And we might even see people that have been supposed men or women of God doing it. And we're to hate it. He's saying here, I want you to abhor. It's hate, detest. Not tolerate, tolerate and play with. Hate, detest, call evil what it is and get away from it. Not saying running from those people unless they're tempting you to sin as well. It's the idea of abhorring what is evil, that which you know can be a temptation to sin. You see, we are to act desirably even when our friends come to us and do all the things that seem innocent, but we know are against God. Which means that we need to act desirably even when we want to follow the world. We have to admit it. We want what the world wants. We have to admit it. We want the fame. We want the fortune. We want, we want what the world has a lot of times until you scratch under the surface and you see that it's really not all that it's cracked up to be. See, the world has this tendency to, to really promote and put up people that will value itself, and they will do anything behind it. Matter of fact, there was an instance of that where there was a, 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 a young lady who decided that she was going to glorify and become a, a, a porn star. And she goes off, and everybody's celebrating her, and the world's throwing her up there, and she's like, oh, it's amazing what you're doing. It's freedom for women, freedom for all this stuff. Wow! And she's getting all these shows, and people are booking her. And then she went through an interview recently, and she has tears in her eyes. She's saying how broken she's become, how people are taking advantage of her left and right. She has no idea who her friends are, that she's been violated. She's been beaten and bruised. Because the world was all great when she's that way. See, the world will value you, will exalt you as long as you esteem it, but we don't see the end product and the end result of the broken lives that people go through when they turn from God because the world does everything in its power not to let that get out. See, the world is is enmity, is against God. And if you try to be a friend of the world, then you've declared yourself an enemy of God. You can't be going into the enemy's camp and then sneak back into God's. It's not, it doesn't work that way. I mean, we have right now, we have going on in the news, we talk about ISIS all the time. It's like saying, I'm going to go hang out with ISIS as they come and kill my family. That's what it's saying to you. It's taking you out. It's oppressing. It's taking your family members and sending them to slavery. It's abusing them. We're like, I'm going to be friends with ISIS, and yet I'm going to go back to my family over here. No! You cannot be a friend of the world and be it and do what God wants you to be and do. None of us can. This, this is supremely seen in our entertainment, especially in our culture. Entertainment is responsible for chaining the souls of so many of God's people in the churches between pornography and movies and websites and shows that I can't believe. I mean, I cannot believe that people would say, in good conscience, God is okay with me watching this. I've read descriptions of these shows. Some of these, I've never seen some of these shows. I'm going I'm to pick on one right now. Game of Thrones. You should not be watching that show, period. Have people raping each other, incest, nudity. Let me tell you, violence, you can make up. Nudity is real. God does not want you to see that. You are not to be, you can't say, I'm following Jesus and put that junk in your eyes. You cannot. 
You cannot call yourself a believer in Jesus and put and pay and say it's okay to put this type of entertainment in my eyes and fill my brain with. Is that renewing your mind? No, that's conforming to the world. We can't do that. And I'm not talking about every show. And that's not my point. My point is not to go around and beat people over the head for watching a show. It's to give you general principles and guidelines of what God has shown within his word that we are to make those decisions ourselves. Whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy. My goal is not to go around and knock you over the head for that, but it's saying don't follow the world. We need to follow God no matter what. Let's come back to our, our text. Let's focus on verse 10. Go with me at verse 10, please. Romans chapter 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's interesting there. To one another's. It's about being in community, yes. Love one another with brotherly affection. Affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, this flies in the fa- face because what he's saying there is I want you to think about one another. I want you to be- love one another and I want you to honor one another. The problem that our culture has is we want to go the opposite of that. We want ourselves. So he, what I'm, I'm taking from what he's saying there, showing, the, see, showing to us within his word here, he's saying I want you to follow God and to act desirably in the world, even when you're tempted to focus on yourself. I want you to focus on others. We're all about focusing on ourselves today. I mean, we are so personalized in everything that we do, whether it's our cell phones, whether it's our cars, whether it's our workplace. Everything is about you as an individual. You don't feel like you should be a man today. You could be a woman. We even have a bathroom for that. It's all about catering to whatever you think and feel, but it can't stand that way. Focus on ourselves. As he's saying, we have to act desirably even when we are wanting to do that. And, and look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. See, we can become lazy, get discouraged. Our love can grow cold. We get lazy. We need to act desirably even when we are faltering in our devotion. Faltering in our devotion. When we're tempted to do all these things, we need to stay true to what God and his word has said. And how do we do that? He's saying here, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent. The idea there is fired up, burning. It requires you to be fired up, excited. Get on fire for God to to fan that flame so it burns brightly. How do you get that fired up? By coming and submitting to God, by being around God's people, to be in within his word. And then God starts changing you. Matter of fact, today, I, I felt, I've been feeling this a lot more in my life. And I don't know, it's, people are praying for me. And I'm in the back, and I'm getting like, I'm not shaking, but I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm just sensing God wanting to do something that I can't contain. And I do, I feel like he's doing something in our midst that I, I, I can't, I start spontaneously crying. Because I feel God's touching us so much. And then I want to see that more and more. And I'm fired up because I want to see his name go forth. And I want to see those who have been living in darkness, who have been chained to their sin, be transformed. Don't you? See, that's what God's doing. God has called you to help do that. And you think, well, it's hard. Yes, it is. But you're going to be, you're going to receive a harvest if you don't give up. Don't give up. Hold on. You're going to reap a harvest. God's going to bless your work. And people around you might be falling away. You keep marching forward. You keep going. You keep marching. You keep teaching. You keep loving. Keep yourself with God. That means not just fired up, 
but fixed on God. He's saying here, serve the Lord. That's the next part. Serve the Lord. You're to be fervent in spirit. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You know why he says serve the Lord? It should be a no-brainer, right? But the idea is, is you're going to interact with people, and people are going to frustrate you, and they're going to make your love grow cold. See, that's what happens. When you start dealing with people, we're all great with serving God. It's people that we have the problem with. It's when people come along and they don't like our idea and they don't want to follow and conflict develops and we have to deal with attitudes and deal with personalities and we have to deal with ourselves and we just say our zeal gets, it's almost like someone just took water and poured it on a flame. And it goes, if that's a thing, I got to deal with people's schedules. I got to deal with all these issues. I'm not going to do this anymore. I just quit. I'm, I'm concerned with just, I'm content with just sitting in the pew being okay. God's saying, no, no, no. Keep your eye on the prize. You're not serving them. You're serving God. Keep the right perspective that it's God you're serving, and he will bless that work. Don't think about the people around. I'm serving God. Keep your focus and your attention riveted and fixed on him. Then notice this. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope. See, we're to find our joy and celebrate in hope. What is our hope? It's in Jesus. He is the living hope, the blessed hope. It's the understanding of his return. We need to make sure that we realize this world is not our home. Our joy is not found in what this world has to offer. Indeed, we need to make sure that we are finding joy in our future. And what's to come? See, when our perspective is off and we, when we live for the future and we're living for what God has, we have joy. We can rejoice in that. Joy comes as a byproduct of that, knowing that no matter what may come, I have my focus on him and we're going to get through this. The problem that we have is when we look at the world. When we start looking at the world and what his has, our joy goes away. Because we see all the evil, we see people giving into sin, and it overwhelms us. I like how was it? Corey Ten Boom said it this way. She said, if you look at the world, you'll get distressed. If you look within, you'll get depressed. If you look at God you'll be blessed. Keep the focus on him. Keep the focus on him. Find joy in the future that God has given and purchased for you. And I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 through 18. I love this passage. I love this. C.S. Lewis did a whole sermon on this. It even became a book. Um, and he, he, it's a real encouraging passage for us. Finding joy in our future because we know that God wins. But he says this, Keep your focus on eternity. And we can see that. And here's the verse. This light, momentary affliction. I love that. Light, momentary. Not heavy. Not forever. It's light. In comparison with what we have in eternity, this is light. Light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Things that are unseen. Look at that second phrase in verse 12. Be patient in affliction, in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. See, it means enduring, be patient, persevering, remaining firm whenever trial or difficulty comes. It means being firm when times are tough. Hold on, don't quit. It's easy to give in. It's harder to hold on. This is where I have to admire Cubs fans. <laughs> have to admire Cubs fans. Because w- the Cubs are good this year. They're a half game out of wild card right now. I mean, I, I'm not a huge baseball guy, but the Cubs have a legitimate shot. 
I mean, they're really good. And if they win the World Series, do you know how many people in the world will be Cub fans at that moment in time? How many people have been hoping for years, for decades, and have remained firm in the, state, the side of opposition? And our staff, Tim Badal, is a huge, rabid Cubs fan. And we have White Sox fans. The White Sox fans love to raz Tim. I mean, they love it, and it's easy to do. And he's like, just wait. He's banking on the future. He's staying firm. And when that happens, he's going to let everyone know. Every Cubs fan will. Because they've held on for so long. And it finally paid off. See, though, though that's not guaranteed, our life with God is. That's guaranteed. And we can stay firm when times are tough. Next, we're to be constant in prayer. Constant in prayer, which means being faithful in prayer. Acting desirably in the sight of God means conversing with Him, running to Him in prayer, conversing with Him through the day, praying for people that come to mind. God is listening and He is working. I've seen Him answer some pretty phenomenal things, and I see Him even doing more now. I'm going to go through these last ones rather quickly. Also, contribute to the needs of the saints. That means right there, being financially helpful. So the people, God's people can not, that, who are in need need help. And you know one of the privileges of being here, a part of this church, and one of the things I love about what I get to do and I'm allowed to do is we get to help people that are in need financially. Whether it's someone that needs, I mean, we've had people come to us. We had a woman come who's, who and her children, uh, three children were about to be evicted from their home. We got to pay her mortgage. We've had people that are stranded. We have to give them gas or help with their auto issues. We've helped with a lot of different issues with groceries and food and supplies and clothing. And I love that about being here. And that is all, we can do all of that based on your gifts. We get to help those people. When people come and they say, well, there's, you know, I need some help. I'm sorry, there's no funds there. Sorry, we only help on a first-come, first-served basis. First, we help the people in our church, and then we help those that are outside of the church and, and what the need might be. And we help those who can't help themselves normally. But when you give a gift and you contribute, you're contributing to the help of other people in our community that are being tangibly helped. It's a wonderful thing to know that your gift is being used for that. I hope so. It's a wonderful thing. So it's being financially helpful. Are you giving? Why not? I can't afford to give. You can't afford not to give. And we're to give something. Just as John was saying earlier, give something. Start it off. Start off someplace else. I mean, start off, if it's just a small amount that you can give, then give that. If you can give a bigger amount, fantastic. But it's about the heart. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. Where's your heart? Are you giving? Are you giving back to God what he's given unto you? And lastly, we are to seek to show hospitality, which means filling our hearts and homes with others. We're to open up our homes to fellowship, to helping others in need. Our faith cannot remain at church. It has to go out into the world, permeating our lives so that others may see Jesus in us. Is your home open? If not, why not? I've got exposed drywall and subfloor and bathroom with two holes in the wall. It's not fun showing it off, and I'm embarrassed. But I'm willing to do it because I want to serve the greater body of Christ. That and I can afford to fix it, I have to fix it myself, so it's going to be a long time because I'm not very good at this. But I'm learning. Thank God I'm learning. Filling our hearts and homes with others. We are to open our homes. Is your home open to other people, to entertain them, to help strangers, to whatever it might be? Now, if we've gone through this, 
I want to remind you that this is not what's just to be done here, but it's all over the world. God is calling us to reach the nations. Being deployed means growing up in the faith to be used. It means being discovered, discovering Jesus, discovering his church, being developed, and then deployed out into the world. It's being a mature believer, going where he wants you to go. And he might have you go across the seas, or he might have you go across the street. And it might be to speak to someone of a different background, a different race, a different culture, but he calls you to go without exception. He doesn't call you just to reach your own country and own language. He calls us to reach everybody for the glory of his name. No matter what their background, no matter what their religious affiliation, no matter what stickers are on the back of their car, no matter where their degree is from, no matter what their job is, no matter what their intelligence level, God is calling us to go. Are we going? Are we being deployed? And you know what? I'm thankful that God has called Tom to go to Alaska, and I am praying that God sends more people everywhere. I want us and I pray that we become ascending church. And I am praying that God touches lives that are here and sends them to the furthest reaches of the earth. Whether it's Papua New Guinea or whether it's New York City. I don't care if it's Chicago to work with those that are homeless or if it's into a rural ministry in the middle of Nebraska. I don't care if it is in in North Korea and you've got to sneak across the border to do it. Or if it's in to, to other countries that are in the furthest, deepest parts of Asia or South America or Africa or maybe even Florida. I don't know. Maybe God's called you to be a missionary to Disney World. God's got missionaries all over the place. And we're to be deployed everywhere. The question is, are you being deployed where God has you? Because God has called you to be deployed at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. What has God called you? Are you being deployed? Why not? Remember, God has called you. He says, you have to go out. You don't have to come back. Are you ready to be that living sacrifice that God wants you to be? Let's do so. Because God's going to guarantee to bless it. For his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you called us unto yourself. Lord, I thank you that you are working within the hearts and minds of the people here. Lord, I thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And Lord, we ask you to sanctify us by your word. Lord, I pray that you propel us, that you launch us, that you deploy us into the furthest reaches of the world, that we might be ascending church, not just across the seas, Lord, but literally across the street, into our schools, into our workplaces. Lord, wherever you want us to be, let us go. Let us be sacrificial. Let us surrender all to you. Lord, forgive us for the sins that so so easily cling to the depths of our souls. Lord, may we repent of them. May we have that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. May we turn away and may we turn to you, the God of hope, the God of second chances, the God who empowers, the God who changes. And Lord, please use us to proclaim your word for a lost and dying world. So Lord, please glorify your name in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.